Hello, and thank you so much for listening to this first episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm very excited to get started. And in the teaser to Creedal Catholic, I mentioned, if you listen to that, that I wanted to do the first couple of episodes of this podcast on my own reasons for conversion. But I want to emphasize this isn't really a drama-filled conversion story so much as it is a sort of reasons for conversion or reasons for belief. My own background as a mainstream evangelical and yet confessional Protestant where I was uh, in the Episcopal Church and then uh, an Anglican um, gave me an appreciation for a lot of the things that are present in Catholic thought, but I still had in me a very strong Protestant streak and thought that the Catholic Church had a lot of things wrong. But as I explored these questions and sort of Uh, elucidated the fault lines between Protestant and Catholic thinking, I came to the gradual understanding that I, in fact, was wrong on these things and that the church in all of its fullness was correct. And with that in mind, I became Catholic. That was in 2015. I explained a little bit more about that in this episode. And I think every Christian should be Catholic. So I hope that you will enjoy these next couple episodes, and I hope that you're along for the ride with Creedal Catholic. I'm super excited about what I have in store for this podcast. Lots of interesting guests coming up, lots of great topics. Uh, Book Club, and if you want to read the first book for the book club, that's going to be Frank Sheed's Map of Life. It's a very short read, about 140 pages long. So uh, if you're Catholic or Protestant or none of the above, I really think it's a great primer for introducing you to some of the ideas of Catholicism and for existing Catholics or cradle or credal Catholics. I think it's a really good uh, reminder and sort of succinct summary of what we believe and why we believe it. So check out Frank Sheed's Map of Life. Like I said, it's a very short, uh, digestible, accessible work, and I'll be reviewing that in an upcoming episode, episode three, uh, for the Creedal Catholic Book Club. So take a look at that. And in the meantime, enjoy this first episode and the episode after this, Reasons for My Belief. Sally, that's my wife, and I both became Catholic almost exactly four years ago, on the same day, at the Easter Vigil of 2015. It was the culmination of a years-long journey that really, when we look back on it, realize It had begun in each of us long before we were even dating. And when we started dating, we realized that we had both thought about this independently and we resolved that when we were engaged and married, we would really pursue this together and explore some of the claims of the Catholic Church. So that's exactly what we did. And that led us to that Easter Vigil night in 2015 when we were received into the church. We were both raised in Protestant households. And even today, we're each the only Catholic person in our immediate or extended family. And I have to say, as painful as it's been at times to not share the same Eucharistic cup as other members of our family, I had a conversation with my parents last year where we talked a little bit about this. And when I became Catholic, and even still, I think, it causes my parents no small degree of pain because it's hard not to see it as, in some ways at least, a repudiation of what I was raised to believe. And while I told my parents I certainly regret any pain that my decision to become Catholic caused them and continues to cause them, my only regret about the actual decision was that I did not make it sooner. Because becoming Catholic has been the greatest blessing of my entire life. And if I could go back and do it all over again, I would make the same decision, but earlier, so that I could be in the church longer and participate in the fullness of communion in Christ's church for even more time. I'm excited in this podcast to talk about exactly why the church has been the biggest blessing of my life and has allowed me to draw closer to Jesus Christ. And that's part of what this conversion story is, because at its root, this conversion story is about the Holy Spirit leading me to where I am today in the Catholic Church. I think it bears mentioning at the beginning of this episode that this is not a conversion story where I travel from atheism to agnosticism to mere Christianity to Catholicism. Instead, this is very simply a journey from Protestantism to Catholicism. Because while in college, I certainly explore the claims of atheism and wrestled with agnosticism a little bit, I was never fully in those camps or even close to it. I was raised Protestant, and I never, I never seriously questioned the existence of God, I certainly question the existence of God as he is revealed in the Bible, and I question the existence of God as he is defined by confessional Protestantism. But I was never seriously thinking that there was no God, that this was all meaningless. I was 
never, never a Nietzschean nihilist or anything like that. I was Protestant, and it was through my my examination of the claims of Protestantism and Catholicism that I became Catholic. So, with that said, my story doesn't necessarily won't res, won't necessarily resonate with everyone, but I think, or at least I hope, it will find some purchase with those of you who are from Protestant backgrounds or even still in Protestant backgrounds. There are plenty of good reasons to come into the church, by the way, from atheism or agnosticism. That's just not my story. There are plenty of stories like that. Uh, I'm actually reading a book right now called, uh, I think it's called Through Fire by Water, or From Fire, through I think it's Through Fire by Water, um, by Saurabh Amari, who has quite a remarkable story um, being raised as a, uh, as a Muslim in Iran, and then uh, moving to the West, uh, becoming a hardcore Marxist atheist, and then finding his home in the Catholic Church. So I commend that book to you. I'm through about 50 pages of it, and it's, it's very good. I plan on doing a full, full episode on it soon, and maybe even interview him on this podcast, which would be really exciting. So anyway, all that to say, there are many, many stories of atheists converting to Catholicism, but I am not one of them. Um, so just be prepared for that. This is not a radical conversion story in that sort of way. But this is still a conversion story because I did indeed enter the church from outside of the church. I also think it's worth mentioning that, you know, just as um, the late John Richard Newhouse uh, converted from Lutheranism to, to Catholicism, you know, he he wrote a letter to his former Protestant brother, or his his yeah, for his brethren, his Protestant brethren who, uh, with whom he was no longer fully in communion, and he basically said that I know you see this as a repudiation of what you taught me and what you believe with me, but I don't see it that way. I see it as me taking that to its logical conclusion, uh, me following in that path, and I'm very grateful to you for the way that you taught me and you formed me and you shaped me and you gave me a love of scripture and a love of Jesus and a love for his church that led me to where I am. And that's very much the way I feel today. Um, I don't uh, hold anything against Protestants. I am grateful for the formation that I received as a Protestant growing up. I'm very grateful to my parents and my family for giving me the love of scripture and of Christ that led me to where I am. And yet I find myself in a very different place than where they are. And that is sad to me, uh, but I'm very happy to be where I am. So what I want to do in this first part of my conversion story today is talk to you about a couple of different things. One of those is scripture, and one of those is sacred tradition and ecclesiology or the church. And I think it, those those two places are, are good places to start because it's really those two things um, that in a structural sense distinguish Catholicism from Protestantism. In the next episode, I want to talk more about soteriology and different understandings of justification and sanctification, how we are saved, and then some sort of um, some uniquely Catholic doctrines that are uh, stumbling blocks, perhaps, for some Protestants who are evaluating the claims of Catholicism. Things like, um, you know, the the Immaculate Conception or the veneration of Mary more broadly, or transubstantiation or purgatory relics, things like that. So I want to tackle those things, but I think first we have to talk about different understandings of scripture and tradition. So let's start with, with scripture. Let's talk about sola scriptura. So as a lifelong Protestant, I know the value that Protestant theology ascribes to Martin Luther's declaration of sola scriptura, right? The scriptures alone. Now, it's Scott Hahn, actually. He, he, uh, he's a former Presbyterian minister who converted to Catholicism in the early 90s. And his memoir about that, his spiritual memoir, is called Rome Sweet Home. And in it, he talks about this claim, right, sola scriptura, and how it occurred to him in sort of a eureka moment that that claim in and of itself is not actually biblical. There is no biblical support for the claim of sola scriptura. Now, you might say, wait a minute, I've, I've heard a few verses about this, and, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but in and of itself, there's no strict biblical support for sola scriptura. Now, there are two verses in my experience that are frequently cited as potential support for this. The first comes from 1 Corinthians 4.6. Um, this is where Paul is warning the Corinthians in his letter to not go beyond what is written. But there are a couple things to remember about this verse in particular. First, look at the context. Okay, so Paul is telling them not to go beyond what is written. So, um, got it, okay, you have what's written down. Don't add to that, okay? Um, but Paul is clearly talking about the Old Testament. Because if you look at just before this passage where he says, don't go beyond what is written, what is he quoting? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 29. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 64 and Job chapter 5 and Psalm chapter 94. 
uh, or Psalm 94. So he is clearly talking about the Old Testament when he's talking about what is written. And in fact, he couldn't be talking about the New Testament because not even the entirety of the New Testament was written. Um, it would be several decades after 1 Corinthians uh, that the book of Revelation, for example, is finally written. So is Paul warning the Corinthians to not even go beyond what is currently codified? Because that's essentially only the Old Testament. Should we then discard the entire New Testament because as Paul said, don't go beyond what was written then when he was writing to the Corinthians? That doesn't make sense. Second, uh, in, this, in this passage as well, Paul has just finished warning the Corinthians against factionalism. He says, you know, there's some of you who say, I follow Paul, and some of you say, I follow Apollos. But, he says, he himself, St. Paul, and Apollos, and Peter are, and this is the word he, the, the phrase he uses, are all stewards of the mysteries of God. So he is ascribing to himself and to others, Peter, uh, Apollos notably, who is not one of the original Apollos, um, as stewards of the mysteries of God, men who are entrusted with the mysteries of God as stewards. Okay, more on that in just a second. The second verse that's commonly used to defend a sola scriptura argument is 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. This one's probably a little better known, um, but I think uh, maybe even a little weaker. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, Paul, writing to a young Timothy, says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so what is this for saying? Well, it's clearly affirming that scripture is God-breathed, not that it is only the, not that it is the only source of doctrine. So the Catholic Church actually has also affirmed exactly this. In the Catechism, uh, paragraph 105, the Church says, the books of the Bible have been, quote, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the Church herself. And in that paragraph, the Church actually cites this verse for proof. So the church hasn't, hasn't uh, you know, pretended that this verse doesn't exist. The church has embraced this verse and said, yes, St. Paul is correct. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is literally inspired. That's the meaning of the Latin word inspire, right? To, uh, just like uh, when you respire, you, or you breathe, right? When you perspire, your skin breathes. Inspire is, uh, God inspired is breathed out by God. So Paul is saying scripture is breathed out by God. Nowhere in this verse does Paul say that scripture is the only source of authority? And in fact, the church has always taught that scripture is God-breathed, but that scripture has been handed on to the church, and the church, in her exercise as a steward of the mysteries of God, as Paul said in the earlier passage we were just talking about, the church also has authority to safeguard those traditions. And look at the, look at the wider context of this chapter as well. Paul was instructing Timothy to rely on not just scripture, but also tradition in his ministry. He said, and I'm quoting now from 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, literally just before this, this verse that I just read. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying? Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, right? Not knowing the book that you learned it from, not just remembering what you read, but knowing from whom you learned it. This is tradition that has been handed on. Now, in Colossians, Paul warns against the temptation of philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, okay? This is another verse that some cite saying we, we need to disregard the church tradition. We can only focus on the Bible because Paul says right here, don't focus on human tradition. But clearly, this is human tradition. This is not divine tradition. It's Paul, Paul very clearly says human tradition, not all tradition, but human tradition. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul praises the Corinthians for holding on to what? Not to the scripture, to the traditions that he had passed on to them. And perhaps notice, most, noticeably, most notably, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to stand firm and hold to the, what? Not the scriptures to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, right? Either by our spoken word or by our letter. So by our letter, what would that be? That would be the epistle, right? Maybe the first epistle to the Thessalonians, since he's saying this in the second epistle to the Thessalonians. But what's the spoken word? The spoken word is the apostolic tradition passed on by Paul and the other apostles. And what is Paul telling the Thessalonians to do? To hold fast to that. 
In First, in First Thessalonians, chapter four, Paul reminds his readers of the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, invoking the apostolic authority that Paul has. Now, let me pause here for a minute and just say that as I was exploring the claims of the church, these verses all struck me. And when I wrote a letter to friends and family members explaining my decision to become Catholic, I included all of these. Because as I studied the claims of the church, and as I compared the claims of the church against what I knew to be true from Scripture, I was really surprised by what I found. Because sola scriptura is not in the Bible. Because there are multiple, multiple portions of the Bible, especially in the, New, in the New Testament, that clearly show there was apostolic authority and there was an apostolic tradition and that tradition and authority was handed on by the apostles to the new apostles. And that continues on to today. So this is really important. And I need to explain a little bit about my own background here. As I mentioned, I was raised Protestant. My parents became Christians in the Baptist church. By the time I was born, they were Presbyterians or they were Presbyterians very shortly after I was born. And then by the time I was, I think, five years old, my parents entered the Episcopal Church. Uh, my father described himself at that point as an evangelical on the Canterbury Trail, the Canterbury Trail referring to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the spiritual head of the Anglican Communion, um, of which the Episcopal Church is a part. And so my parents became, became uh, Episcopal, or Anglican uh, in the broader sense, and it wasn't until I, I, I appreciated growing up in the Episcopal Church and it gave me an appreciation of liturgy. It gave me an appreciation of uh, religious tradition that I might not have had in, uh, wider, uh, in the wider evangelical world. But the problem that I, that I found is that in the early to mid-2000s, the Episcopal Church really started to divide over questions of human sexuality and the authority of Scripture and natural law more broadly. And one thing that I realized is that if there is no definitive arbiter of doctrinal disputes, you will have chaos. And this, I think, factors into the sola scriptura issues that I was just talking about, because if you look back in most of Christian history, when there have been heresies that have, been, that have arisen, it's normally not because someone is overzealously relying on a, a piece of sacred tradition. But rather, it's because someone is isolating a portion of Scripture or making an interpretation of Scripture that radically departs from the sacred tradition that has guided and guarded it and making their own doctrinal pronouncements over and against those of the church. So, for example, Pelagius, the father of the Pelagian heresy, defended the scriptural basis for his claims. He debated Augustine once and said, what we read, therefore, let us believe, and what we do not read, let us deem it wicked to add, and let it suffice to have said this of all cases. So basically, if it's in the Bible, let us believe it. If it's not in the Bible, let us deem it wicked to add. And Pelagius was very wrong in his claims. We can't earn our salvation. That's not what it's about. Uh, we cannot be righteous independent of God's grace. And yet, Pelagius appealed directly to scripture for his claims. <laughs> Similarly, uh, Arius, the bishop who spearheaded the Arianist controversy and the Arianist heresy, he was at least in part inspired by disrespect for the authority of the church's teaching. Augustine uh, once debated a, an Arian bishop named uh, Maximinus. And Maximinus said, if you produce from the divine scripture something that we all share, then I'll have to listen. But those words which are not found in the scriptures are under no circumstances accepted by us, especially since the Lord warns us, saying, in vain they worship me, teaching human commandments and precepts. So, uh, he's appealing to 2 Timothy 3, 16, which, which I just talked about. Um, but the problem is that he already, at this very early stage in the church's history, uh, in the 4th century, is already ascribing to, uh, to human commandments and precepts what the church has divinely declared as true, and he's using that uh, excuse to expound what is clearly a, a, a heresy uh, and is not true. So those, that's what the Arians are doing. That's what the Pelagians were doing. And I read a book by Thomas Howard when I was on my path to Catholicism, and the book's called Lead Kindly Light. It's a very easy read. I highly recommend it for anyone who's engaging with some of these questions. And Howard in that book wrote, 
Eutychius and Sibelius and Arius got their notions straight out of the Bible as well. Who will arbitrate these things for us? Who will speak with authority to us faithful? And so here we see a great example that church tradition and authority has been absolutely essential in preserving the truth of the Christian faith. Because scripture on its own can be misinterpreted and misapplied and misunderstood. But when scripture is guarded by a divinely inspired and guided church, then it can be correctly safeguarded. And that's why Paul pointed out that he and Apollos and Peter were all stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, because the apostolic tradition that has been passed on to the leaders of the church, that apostolic tradition is being stewards of the mysteries of God, and that is what the leaders of the church are. So that's why the church has been necessary for preserving the truth of the Christian faith through the scripture. So it doesn't take anything away from scripture. Scripture is absolutely divinely inspired. But the problem with it being divinely inspired is that we need it to be divinely protected as well. And that is why the church exists, at least in part. Okay, it's easy for us now to see retrospectively the Trinitarian theology of the New Testament. But when you just look at the Bible, is it that easy to come up with? Or is it actually the fact that the church, guided by God, was able to develop a robust Trinitarian theology to defend against the many heresies of that time? Right? Would we be able to assemble the Athanasian Creed according to a doctrine of Sola Scriptura? Would we be able to ascribe uh, or subscribe to the Athanasian Creed and say that anyone who doesn't is a heretic with just Sola Scriptura? Or is it true that we've received our understanding of the Trinity from the pastoral and catechetical work of the Church Fathers, the early saints, and the apostles, who all handed down either by, as Paul says, by spoken word or by written letter, the truth? Of the gospel. And in this, in exploring this question, I, I came to understand that the latter was the case. Okay, so that's sort of question one. Does scripture stand on its own? But I think there's another related question to this. And, and as I was exploring this question, I thought about this as well. What is scripture? Okay, so we, if we've established that scripture is divinely inspired, great. In an ontological sense, most Protestants and Catholics agree with that, right? It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, for correction, etc. Okay, so that's what it is in an ontological sense. In an existential sense, it is divinely inspired. Great, okay. In an empirical sense, though, what is the Bible? How many books are in it? Is it 66? Is it 73? How do we know? How did those books end up there? And when I was examining these questions, I realized that not only is the doctrine of sola scriptura unsupported in Scripture, but neither is the canon of Scripture. At no point in the Bible does the Bible say, here are the books of the Bible, Right? The best place that this could happen, uh, absent in a startlingly accurate prophecy in the Old Testament, would be in the book of Revelation, right? Uh, where It would be really great if the book of Revelation said, here are the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. But it doesn't do that. Uh, why? Maybe in part because uh, John was in exile on the island of Patmos when he wrote Revelation, right? Uh, maybe in part because uh, at the time, the New Testament was uh, fragments that were floating around out there and the church was still discerning uh, what exactly would be in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say what the Bible is or what is in the Bible. So to understand what's in the Bible, we need to look at the early church. And when we, when we do that, we realize that we have the Bible today only because of the early church. Now, the obvious difference between Protestant and Catholic understandings of Scripture, uh, as far as this empirical sense goes, is the Catholic inclusion of the deuterocanonical books. And if you're a Protestant, talk about these, you might hear the Apocrypha, which basically means of questionable origin. Uh, but that's not the, the Catholic uh, term for them because they are not of questionable origin. They are uh, divinely inspired. Um, so we call them the deuterocanonical books because, uh, because of their placement in the, uh, in the canon. Okay, so in the Protestant telling, these books were not considered a part of Scripture until the post-Reformation Council of Trent in the 16th century. The Council of Trent was, of course, the, uh, the council that responded to the Protestant Reformation. And it is in that council that we find one example of the church uh, pronouncing what is canon and what is not. What is part of the Scripture and what is not. What is in, what is out. Okay, so, so there's two misunderstandings uh, that that understanding is rooted in. Um, first is the question of the scriptural canon First is the issue of the scriptural canon is not as neat and clean as some Protestants think. Uh, for example, let me, let me tell you here what an Anglican church historian named J.N.D. Kelly wrote. He said, uh, throughout the whole patristic age, 
as indeed in all subsequent Christian centuries, the Old Testament was accepted as the Word of God, the unimpeachable sourcebook of saving doctrine. Okay, good. He continues, it should be observed that the Old Testament, thus admitted as authoritative in the church, was somewhat bulkier and more comprehensive than the 22 or 24 books of the Hebrew Bible of Palestinian Judaism. Here's the important part right here. And this is an Anglican historian, mind you. It always included, though with varying degrees of recognition, the so-called Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books. This is from J.N.D. Kelly's Early Christian Doctrines. So what is Kelly saying here? He's saying that the, the list of Old Testament books that Protestants use today uh, that was not the entire list of Old Testament scriptures generally used uh, and considered as authoritative in the early church. There was more than that, okay? In fact, many of the church fathers compiled lists of scriptural books. Most of these lists contained at least some of the deuterocanonical volumes, and you know, Maccabees, Judith, etc. And many of them actually omitted the book of Esther, which is interesting because now that's included even in the Protestant scriptural canon. Every Protestant Bible includes the book of Esther as one of the 66 books of the Bible. Okay, so that's the first That's the first issue. Second, the specific codification of the Deuterocanonical books into the scriptural canon of the Council of Trent is not an example of the churches inventing this stuff out of nowhere. It wasn't, hey, it's now the 16th century, let's just decide what's in and what's out. The common understanding is that the church decided what was in at the Council of Trent because the Reformation challenged some of those books. Um, but actually, when we look at the historical record, this is very far from the truth. And the church uh, centuries, uh, in fact, over a thousand years prior to the Council of Trent, already decided what was in and what was out. Um, and one quick point here on Catholic church councils. In a church council, there can be no theological innovation as such, because these councils are not there to invent new doctrine and innovate new doctrine. They are there to clarify doctrine, um, to rebut heresies and to develop doctrine. Um, and, and we'll talk about the development of doctrine uh, in a later podcast because there's a lot of good stuff there to talk about and we can use John Henry Newman's development of doctrine essay as a good launching point. But innovation as such at a church council is is not something that happens at a church council. So it would be incorrect to say that uh, that Trent invented something here or said something new about the, the uh, canon of scripture. So um, in the case of the Council of Trent, Martin Luther prior to the Council of Trent, had decided to discard the Deuterocanonical books in his German translation because he said um, they were not reliable. And he said they were not reliable because they were not in one version of the Old Testament as opposed to the other. So when responding to Luther, Trent had to be very clear on the fact that those Deuterocanonical books should be included. So they said, here are the books of the Bible. That's it. Uh, it's an open and shut case. Okay. Um, and when you look at the historical record, actually you see that these books of the Bible had already been decided by the church in the fourth century. Athanasius developed this list of books, uh, 73 books, around 367 AD. Pope Damasus I confirmed the list five years, uh, 15 years later. And then in 393, the Synod of Hippo officially established the modern canon. The Council of Carthage in 397 AD, and then later Trent affirmed this teaching. So <laughs> before 400 AD, we had a full, complete, and codified list uh, affirmed by uh, one pope, one synod, and one council, the Council of Carthage. 1,100 years later, Trent says the same thing, um, and uh, there's nothing new there, right? Okay, here's here's another interesting thing. Just This is more to sort of G-Wiz knowledge. When I was studying this, I uh, learned that not only did Luther say that the Deuterocanonical books, or as he said, the Apocrypha, should not be included in the Bible, he also didn't like the Gospel of James, and uh, was very against the book of Revelation. He said he considered Revelation to be neither apostolic nor prophetic, and he moved both of those books to the end of his Bible so that they would not be regarded, quote, among the chief books of the New Testament. Um, now, Trent, on this point, specifically countered Luther's claims by affirming that, actually, no, uh, James, Hebrews, Jude, Revelation, all these books that you don't like, dude, these are actually the Bible, and you got to deal with it. Um and I think one other point here, you know, when I was a kid uh, and a teenager, you know, I'd pick up my Bible and I'd read it. And there are some passages that are interesting because, uh, for example, you read um, John, right? The uh, the Gospel of John. John chapter 7, um, the end of the chapter into the beginning of chapter 8, there's this great story about a woman caught in adultery. And, uh, you know, the Pharisees have this woman. They're getting ready to stone her. Jesus is is writing something on the ground. We, we don't know what. 
um, although there's there's good writing from the church fathers to suggest what he was writing. Um, and so it's a great story, right? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, et cetera, all of this. Well, that, you know, there, if, you pick up, if you pick up almost any Bible, you'll see a note that says basically this portion of the gospel is not included in the earliest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel. Uh, in other words, maybe it's not reliable, maybe it is, but it doesn't appear in the earliest surviving manuscripts. Well, here's what's interesting. Um, that's in most Protestant Bibles, if not all, um, and it's in the Catholic Bible because the Catholic Church has decided that that actually is uh, is part of the Bible. But the interesting thing to me is that the Protestant tradition also relies on tradition here um, to settle this matter of disputed scriptural material. So the Protestant uh, vision is basically, well, this has generally been considered to be divine, divinely inspired, so we will keep it in here as the Bible. Um, and so the the uh, the epistemology of the Protestant paradigm here is startlingly similar to that of the Catholic one. In other words, appeal to tradition to what the church has held to be true, and we will deem that to be true. Okay, so that's sort of the question of scripture. And I've got a few more minutes here to talk about ecclesiology, and then I'll wrap up this episode one and save episode two for later. But as I mentioned before, um, you know, it's impossible to cover my conversion story without talking about this key period of my life when I was in high school and I was in an Episcopal church and the church literally split in two. I don't mean the physical building. I mean the the church as the body of people, the body of congregants, the parishioners in the church literally split in two because in 2003, the Episcopal uh, Diocese of New Hampshire uh, consecrated as bishop a man named uh, Gene Robinson. And Gene Robinson is a man who identified as gay and who uh, lived with a partner. I don't remember if he was in a civil union or not. Um, but the issue was that the Episcopal Church, by consecrating him, was giving moral approbation to uh, the choices that he was making to be participating in sexual activity with another man. And this caused a sort of ecclesial crisis in the Episcopal Church because there were lots of churches that uh, saw the uh, tradition of Christianity and the witness of Scripture as being clear on these issues of human sexuality. And there were others who were much more progressive on these ideas and thought that uh, the Diocese of New Hampshire was doing a good thing in consecrating Bishop Robinson. Well, this reached ahead in my parish um, in part in part because of that issue and in part because the parish was led by a pastor who was a bit of a firebrand and had a tendency to get in theological clashes with his bishop. But the church split apart over this. And I watched this happen, and I was in high school. And this was a church that had meant a lot to me. I was very involved in the youth group. Um, I was very involved in, you know, volunteering at the church all the time. I, I actually was employed by the church and as a, you know, communications assistant, basically helping to helping to assemble the bulletins and print them and, and do all the layout stuff. And this was a formative moment for me because I looked at these trends that were ripping the Episcopal Church apart. Because, you know, I mentioned my parish splitting apart. That was small beans compared to what was happening in the broader Episcopal Church because it was literally rent in two. And um, I was watching all of this with keen interest. Um, and I was very frustrated because there was no mechanism for resolving these disputes. One group said one thing about the Bible and another group said another thing about the Bible. And there was no clarity on who was right. And there was no mechanism for correcting those who were wrong. So very, very frustrating. And I think what it highlighted to me at the time is that the church has to be more than this. The church is not simply a body of people in the pews. The church is not simply a collective of Christians who want to do good works and practice acts of charity, although, it, uh, although you know, those are good things. The church fundamentally is the safe the, the steward of the mysteries of God, right? And the mediator of the graces of salvation. And I can explain a little bit more about what I mean by that, but basically through word, that's that's safeguarding the mysteries of God, and sacrament, um, that is administering the sacraments, which are the ways that we encounter the graces of Christ, that is what the church exists for in the world. 
And as I grew into this understanding of the church, I recognized that this was not what I had grown up believing about the church. And I looked around me and looked at the church of which I was a part and realized that this is not the church that I was in. If there existed such a church, it was somewhere else. And that was when I started thinking about the Catholic church. So I've talked for, for a while about scripture and scripture the question of scripture is connected inherently to the question of church authority, right? Because we rely on church authority to have our understanding of what is in and what is out of scripture. We, um, if we believe things about the divine authority of the church, we necessarily must also meet, must also think about questions of um, the interplay between sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And so these two questions are, are very linked together. Well, I think it's important to um, look at what the early church fathers said about what the church is and where the arbiter of doctrine is. You know, I found this long, and it's not that long, it's a paragraph. I found this paragraph by Tertullian, who himself believed a couple questionable things later on, but a lot of his stuff early on, especially his uh, work against heresies, is very good. Um, and in his prescription against the heretics in chapter 19, he has this passage which I think uh, very aptly talks about the authority of the church to uh, to resolve disputes um, and how we must rely on the divine authority of the church in doing that. He says, and I'm going to read his paragraph here, our appeal, therefore, must not be made to the scriptures, nor must controversy be admitted on points in which victory will be either impossible or uncertain or not certain enough. But even if a discussion from the scriptures should not turn out in such a way as to place both sides in a par, so in other words, uh, if, if we can look at the scriptures and we still don't agree on things, the natural order of things would require that this point should be first proposed, which is now the only one which we must discuss. And he's asking this question, with whom lies that very faith to which the scriptures belong? From what and through whom and when and to whom has been handed down that rule by which men become Christians? For wherever it shall be manifest that the true Christian rule and faith shall be, there will likewise be the true scriptures and expositions thereof and all the Christian traditions. So I like this because he is, one, saying that we need the church, and two, saying that there is no scripture without, there's no church without the scripture, and in a way, there is no scripture without the church because it is the church that has safeguarded the true interpretation of the scriptures. And I think that understanding of it is very important. And the catechism of the Catholic church also gets at this very well. When Catholics talk about sacred tradition, they're not saying sacred tradition over and above sacred scripture. And when they say sacred scripture, they're not saying over and above sacred tradition. Because, yes, sacred scripture is divinely inspired. No, sacred tradition cannot contradict scripture. But the the idea of the, these two contradicting each other is a logical impossibility. Because they both, and this is what the catechism talks about, they both flow from the same wellspring. That is, they both flow from the divine nature. And so they cannot possibly contradict each other. Okay. Well, we understand that there you know, I understand that when I was looking at this question, there's a middle ground, right, between an outright rejection of church tradition and a wholesale acceptance of Roman Catholicism. And for a long time, I, I considered myself there. I was in the Episcopal Church, so we can sort of have our cake and eat it too. We could, uh, we could, you know, do the, do a liturgy that looked a lot like a, a Roman Mass and felt a lot like a Roman Mass, and we could say a, a lot of the words of consecration, um, but we didn't have to believe the things about transubstantiation and uh, sacramental grace that, that the Catholics believe, right? Um, more on that later. Um, but you know, when I, saw, when I was in the Episcopal church and I saw the Episcopal church, uh, start to split apart over some of these foundational questions, uh, about human nature, I just saw this, this method of the via media, you know, this desire to, uh, be sort of rooted in or connected to the sacred tradition of the church, but not to be, uh, wholly subservient to those. I saw that just fail spectacularly. And in the Anglican Communion, there's no place where the buck stops. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the spiritual head, but he's not the supreme head. He can't, uh, he can't make pronouncements. He can't even defrock uh, a bishop outside of his own, um, his own archdiocese. Uh, and, you know, that's a problem. That's a big problem because there's no mechanism by which a truly wayward bishop can be corrected. In the Catholic Church, there is. Now, Bear in mind, that does introduce some other problems, um, but at least there is a mechanism by which the church can be protected from error. That mechanism institutionally does not exist uh, outside of the Catholic Church. 
Now, let me back up a little bit too. So circa 2012, I received a scholarship to go to Oxford and study for graduate school. And this is a time when I was sort of going through a an investigation phase in my life. I, as I mentioned, had been raised in the Episcopal Church. Um, and then I sort of had flirted with non-denominational evangelicalism and uh, sort of confessional reformed uh, Presbyterianism in college. And I was sort of all over the map, but I was really excited about going to Oxford because it was there, I thought, it was there that I could encounter true Anglican theology, which had such a rich and noble history. Um, and you know, it was really interesting. I, I went to Oxford with no no understanding of the Oxford movement and, and what the Oxford movement had consisted of. Um, and yes, it is true that the Oxford movement had revitalized a lot of Anglicanism, um, but it's also true that out of the Oxford movement had had come some very prominent Anglican converts to Catholicism, uh, most notably John Henry Newman. And, uh, you know, more on that, more on that later in the later episode. But so I, I went to Oxford thinking I'm going to find a really solid Anglican church here and I'm going to really be able to connect with Anglican theology and it'll be here that I sort of get, get re-centered if, if there's an opportunity to do that, get re-centered in Anglicanness, um, and I won't, I won't have to become Catholic, right? Well, I get to Oxford, um, and I was a bit dismayed because what I found there was another part of the Anglican communion um, right here in the heartland of Anglicanism, uh, also in disarray. On the one hand, there were uh, what we might call high church Anglican churches um, that practiced Marian veneration and prayed for the Pope. Very, It was a very strange experience going to one of these churches and hearing them pray for the Pope um, and using the language of transubstantiation and then going to another church in this very same diocese, which uh, had basically a you know Zwinglian, uh, like a... Uh, just bread and wine, right? Just mere symbols view of the sacraments of the Eucharist um, and was very reformed in its approach and Calvinist. Uh, again, an Anglican church in the same diocese, literally down the street uh, from this other church that had just, uh, you know, incorporated Marian prayers in its liturgy and prayed for the Pope and uh, and espoused transubstantiation. A very, um, a very bizarre thing to realize. And... I think it was disappointing to me, but I think it was also a moment of clarity for me because I realized that if there is no unity over doctrine, then there is no unity at all. The church cannot be one, and, and, and Jesus prays to the Father, right, that they may be one as you and I are one, but the church cannot be one unless the church believes as one. And it's it sounds like maybe a, a simple or even axiomatic insight, but for me, I think that was a really important thing to realize. The church cannot be one if it does not believe as one. So let's talk a little bit more about the church and, and let's talk about Jesus's words when what he talks about when he talks about the church. So in all of the gospels, there are only two instances in which Jesus makes direct references to the church. Now, there are, there are lots of parables in which he talks about uh, the church. Uh, there are uh, parts certainly in the post-resurrection a portion of the Gospels where Jesus inaugurates the church and institutes the church. Um, but as far as him using the word church, those references are both in Matthew, and they're two chapters apart. One is Matthew 16, when he also uh, talks about Simon as the rock, and one is Matthew 18. Let me just read to you a quote from Matthew chapter 16. This is a very, very <laughs> debated passage of Scripture for obvious reasons. But this is Matthew 16, 15 to 19. He said to them, Jesus, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the part of this passage that receives the most attention is the first half of verse 18. This is when Jesus promises that on this rock, I will build my church. There are three different interpretations of this. Um, the one that the Catholic church espouses is that when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. Uh, Peter, he, he's, he's basically using wordplay. Uh, the wordplay being that Petros, or Peter's name, is uh, Greek for rock. And he's saying, you are rock, and on this rock I build my church. So he's, he's saying that, Peter, I'm going to build the church on you, right? Um, 
Another, uh, another common interpretation, uh, particularly in Protestant circles, is that the rock on which the church will be built is the confession, right? When Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that's the rock that Jesus is talking about. You know, I have a, um, an ESV study Bible from Crossway. It is an entirely Protestant, mostly Reformed editorial staff. And it's interesting, the study notes for this section actually say that the most plausible uh, the most plausible interpretation of this passage is that Jesus is referring to Peter, the person, as the rock. So, so that's interesting. You know, make of that what you will. But that is a, um, you know, a, a serious and scholarly Protestant uh, study note in my Bible, my Protestant Bible, saying uh, the most plausible translation is that Peter is the rock on which Jesus is building the church. Okay. So, um, interestingly, uh, we. You know, we focus a lot of our attention on the first half, though, on the struggle build my church. That's all well and good. There's a lot to say on that. Uh, I obviously um, believe that the Catholic Church interpretation is correct. Um, but, you know, in this conversation, I want to look at the later paragraphs or, or the later part of this, right? The part that strikes me is the second half of this verse. So not the on this rock I build my church, but the second, the second part of that sentence, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, one of the foundational questions for me as I thought about these questions of ecclesiology was, do I take seriously Jesus' promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church? If we do not, then we are in need of serious theological correction because Jesus told us they wouldn't, right? Do we believe Jesus? Do we take him at his word? If we do believe that, then, you know, as, as a Protestant, how can you explain the 1,400 years between the Apostolic Age and the Protestant Reformation, right? When all of the church had presumably gone off the rails. When, by the time Martin Luther came on board to correct everything, almost nothing that the church was teaching was actually foundational to the gospel. So did the gates of hell prevail for a little while? Was the church just invisible at this point? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, and there's a second, second thing here that I just need to point out in the context of my own conversion. Immediately after college, I read a book called Surprised by Hope, by a man named N.T. Wright. Sometimes he's called Tom Wright, but he's an Anglican bishop. And again, Anglican, not Catholic. But his book is actually about eschatology, about the end of the world. And one of the central theses in that book is that there's a common, common thread in a lot of Christian theology today, a lot of pop theology especially, but it's, it's really pretty pervasive and you can find it in a lot of hymnals at your church or whatever. Sometimes I think this is um, in Catholic theology as well. The idea is that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, in the words of the uh, the gospel song. And N.T. Wright really takes issue with this because he says nowhere in Christian theology is this idea espoused. This is not just a uh, a temporary home. This is our home. And this home is temporarily conditioned by the limitations of the fall. But this is still our home, and God has made our home, and God has made it good, and God will remake it uh, at the end of time. And God is doing something new, right? He's doing a new thing with his creation, and our task is to prepare for that re-inauguration of the creation, right? It's interesting that in Revelation, we do not all get raptured away to the New Jerusalem, but rather what happens? The New Jerusalem descends from heaven, right, to earth. So it's not about earth being consumed by fire and we all get whisked away to be in the clouds with Jesus, but rather it's about all of creation being remade as the new kingdom is inaugurated. Okay, so maybe uh, maybe it seems like a minor insight. To me, it wasn't because it sort of turned on my head much of what I had thought about the church. Because prior to reading that book, I had... I had essentially espoused what I call a celestial body count, a theological worldview, that the task of the Christian was to believe in Jesus and go to heaven. And on top of that, to convince as many other people as possible to believe in Jesus and thus go to heaven. And this book expanded, expanded my moral imagination so much more. Because instead of seeing my mission as just adding to the celestial body count, uh, and by that I just mean the, you know, the number of people who get to heaven, um, instead I saw my task as doing the work of God and in, in, you know, quite, really, quite uh, realistically trying to realize his kingdom here, trying to live the kingdom of God in practical 
real, uh, if necessary, gritty ways. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that a necessary part of this vision, at least in my opinion, is the unity of the church. Because the only reason that we can, the only way, the only conceivable way forward for us to do that is to be together as one people of God. And so in thinking about church unity, I started thinking, what are the, what are the candidates for church unity? If I, if I really care about church unity, where do I go? Do I go be a Baptist? Do I go be a Presbyterian? Do I be a sort of evangelical, non-denominational Christian? Do I go be an Orthodox Christian? Um, do I go be a Catholic, right? Do I be an Anglican, a Lutheran, whatever? What church has the best case for unity? And there are lots of reasons why I thought the Catholic Church had the strongest claim to that. One being that uh, it has the most globally diverse population. Another being that it has a mechanism for correction that is uh, centralized. Uh, another being that it has plausible claims to the very early church in the earliest apostolic age. So lots of, lots of things informed my opinion that this was the most serious claimant to church unity. But ultimately, it just needed more. I, I needed to investigate this more. But combined with the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and N.T. Wright's discourses on the end times through his book, Surprised by Hope, I started really thinking seriously about church unity and what I believed about church unity and what God was doing through the church. Okay, so let me just say a quick thing about the church here. The Catholic church view or the Catholic doctrine on the church is very different from what anybody else believes about the church with the possible exception of the Orthodox. Because the Catholics believe that the church, as I mentioned already, is the steward of the mystery of God. And in, in being the steward of the mystery of God is actually divinely protected from error. This is directly tied to, the, to papal infallibility, which is just an extension of what I'm about to say. But basically, the magisterium is the, the teaching authority of the church. Uh, the magisterium generally means the bishops when acting in concert, right? When acting together. So the magisterium are divinely protected from error when teaching on faith and morals. Okay, this is huge. This is earth-shattering because it's, it's this belief, really, that is the mechanism for correcting heresy, right? When teaching on faith and morals, the magisterium is, is protected from error, okay? So that means that the magisterium can't contradict Scripture, right? The magisterium could not say tomorrow that uh, Jesus never rose from the dead. Why could they not say that? Well, one, because Scripture is very clear that he did rise from the dead. Two, because the magisterium has previously affirmed that, yes, indeed, the resurrection was a physical one, it was a bodily one, it was a real historical event that actually happened, right? So it can't contradict Scripture, and it can't contradict itself. And this is a pretty, this is a pretty amazing thing to think about. In nearly 2,000 years of church history, the magisterium has not retracted a previous doctrinal statement. Okay. Now, it is true that there are, there are times when, it's been, when doctrinal statements have been clarified and developed, but I challenge you, and I would love to, I would love to uh, see examples of this so I could work through them. I, would, I challenge you to find an instance of the magisterium issuing an erroneous statement on faith and morals. Okay? And if this were the case, if this were to actually happen, the doctrine of the sacred magisterium would collapse on the legs holding it. Um, now, papal authority is an extension of this because the, the Pope, as head of the College of Bishops, as head of the magisterium, is protected by the same uh, divine safeguards that protect the entire magisterium. So when teaching ex cathedra, that means in his capacity from the chair of St. Peter, on a matter of faith and morals, uh, on a subject that is to be held by all the faithful, the Pope is also uh, protected from error, Okay. And this is interesting too, right? Because uh, Peter, as the first pope, I mentioned already that passage from Matthew 16 where Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. Peter's not really a strong dude in the Bible. I've been reading through a lot of the uh, gospel passages in Lent this year and uh, Peter just strikes me as a pretty, a pretty goofy guy. Like when he goes up on the mountain of the transfiguration, um, he, <laughs> he, he sees uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, right? And Instead of like falling on his face and just being wowed by this and uh, recognizing clearly that he is being given a share of the uh, beatific vision, instead Peter's like, "Jesus, wow! L let me let me uh, you know pitch three tents—one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah." 
Um, or, or other times, you know, when uh, Jesus is walking on water and, and Peter seems utterly confused. Uh, or certainly when he's weak, right? After Jesus' um, arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter denies him three times. So of all the guys to be chosen as the leader of the apostles, uh, Peter's a pretty darn weak candidate. But I think this is a, an amazing testament to the way that God safeguards doctrine. Because if Peter was selected as the first pope and was entrusted to be the chief steward of the mystery of God, then wow, it says something about how God had to and has to protect the church and the pope as its head from error. So really interesting. Okay, one final note on that, actually. Um, Acts chapter 15. So this is really interesting, too. So um, someone, a Protestant who I was talking to in my process of discerning this path to Rome, a Protestant told me to look at Acts 15. He said, you know, look at Acts 15. Um, James, as the Bishop of Jerusalem, is the one who makes the final pronouncement. Um, and he does it over and against the, uh, the judgment of Peter. So I went and looked at Acts 15, um, and this is really interesting. So the issue in Acts 15 was uh, the apostles were debating the concerns or debating the necessity of the circumcision for Gentiles, right? So Jews had the covenantal circumcision, Gentiles did not because uh, they were not a part of the covenant. Clearly, this is a divisive issue among the leaders of the church. The church is is still sort of figuring out um, supersessionism and, and where... Uh, the line falls on that. There were some who taught that if you were to become a Christian, you were also going to be essentially grafted into Judaism and you had to be circumcised. And there were others who said you didn't, right? Okay, so prior to the council, um, Paul actually rebuked Peter uh, about a year earlier to this, uh, earlier than the council here. Paul rebuked Peter for the same issue. And now verses six and seven of Acts 15 tell us that the apostles had all gathered together to consider this matter, right? They had a lot of debate. And it's only then, after much debate, that Peter stands up. And Peter stands up in verse 12. And he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. Okay? That's great. That's absolutely orthodox Christian doctrine. And after he finishes speaking, this is interesting too, verse 12, the whole assembly falls silent. Why would they fall silent? I think they fell silent because the matter was settled. This is Peter as the head of the College of Bishops, as the chief of the apostles, making a pronouncement, right? They don't need to be circumcised because they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, right? The matter is settled. And then the attention turns to Barnabas and Paul. They start telling stories of signs and wonders from their missionary journey, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, it's James, Bishop of Jerusalem, hosting the conference, who stands up and says, all right, this is what we're going to do. He gives the tactical orders about how his diocese is going to act in accordance with the doctrine that Peter had already articulated earlier in the conference. So it's interesting. Acts 15, to me, seems to actually justify um, the, the structure of the Pope as the head of the College of Bishops in a way that, um, that I had not seen before. So that was another interesting, insightful moment for me. And so I'm going to end this episode there having covered Sola Scriptura and the scriptural canon and ecclesiology. And I think what I want to do in the next episode is talk to you a little bit more about how I how I sort of came to understand Catholic teaching on soteriology and how we're saved, justification and sanctification. And then talk to you about some of the um some of the the problematic doctrines, to be to be totally honest with you. Some of the things that I had trouble believing, right? Uh purgatory, for example. Uh, Pope Benedict really helped me on purgatory or Mary, the mother of God, something um, something I really struggled with for quite a long time. Uh, transubstantiation, something I didn't struggle with as much, but, you know, is, if, if we're being honest, to a, to a secular mind, it's probably the strangest um, of the church's core doctrines. I just finished reading a book called The End of Faith by Sam Harris, a noted atheist, and the book is terrible, uh, filled with logical inconsistencies and straw mans and red herrings and all sorts of stuff. I think I'm going to do an episode on The End of Faith as well. But one of the things he attacks most chiefly is transubstantiation. And I think uh, that is no accident. Um, this is something that is completely countercultural. It is completely uh, antithetical to the materialism of our current world. And it's, it's really a mouthful. Um, it's mouthful to, to swallow intellectually. So we can talk about that as well. Um, and uh, from there, I'll sort of wrap it up. 
But thank you so much for listening. This is uh, the first of many episodes of Credo Catholic. I'm so excited to continue this discussion and uh, continue exploring the depth and the richness of the Catholic faith. I have um, some really great interviews lined up that I will be uh, recording soon with guests and then releasing soon. So please stay tuned to this feed. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback on this. You can email credocatholic at vernacularpodcast.com. And let me know what you think of this episode. Also, please, if you don't mind, head to Apple Podcasts. Give me a rating and review. Uh, you know, five stars are great, but honesty is the best policy. So let me know what I can do to improve and how I can fix it. Hopefully you enjoyed this uh, rather long-winded discussion. They will not all be this long, but there's a lot to tell when I'm talking about how and why I became Catholic. So thank you so much for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have anything to chime in on or something you disagreed with, uh, something that you want to add, maybe you yourself have a journey to Catholicism and you want to share a portion of that, I'd love to hear from you. So again, Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. All right, and go check out other podcasts on the Vernacular Podcast Network. You can just go to vernacularpodcast.com and check that out. All right, I will talk to you next time on Credo Catholic. Thank you so much for listening and God bless you.